Our text of Scripture this morning is the very last verse of chapter 2, going into verse 7 of chapter 3 in Genesis. Let's hear the word of our God. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, we ask that you would teach us, instruct us, admonish us, and correct us. I ask that you would make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ, that you would train us for righteousness, that we might be equipped to obey through grace. Apart from the work of your Spirit, we will merely be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Savior of sinners and sanctifiers of the saints. Amen. One of the great questions that uh, people ask or at least thinking people ask, is what's wrong with the world? It's, you know, what can we come to understand all of the problems that the world experiences? What is it that is basically at the root of the various wars that we see? Of things like oil spills destroying a gulf? All of these sort of questions. Why is it that we can't get along in our own families? That's really a big picture question. It's an important question. How you answer that question will determine the direction you move to somehow fix the problem. So what is wrong with the world? Is it merely ignorance? And therefore, you know, as some people think, all we need is to educate people and then everything will work out okay? Well, there are very many very educated people currently sitting in prison. So I don't know if quite education is the answer. Not that we should be uneducated, but that's ignorance is not the problem. Is it uh, unequal distribution of wealth? Is that the problem? Well, that certainly can be a problem, but if you're thinking that that is the big picture problem, uh, then basically you're looking for a political system that will somehow rectify the problem. Some people think the problem is religion. Man, if we didn't have religion, we wouldn't have all of these wars. There wouldn't be all of these fights. And you kind of go, well, you know, yeah, there's been some religious wars, but there have also been some pretty profound, devastating non-religious wars 
for instance, everything that took place in the Soviet Union by a communist regime, a regime that was atheistic in nature. The wars that exist do not always function of religion. That's not the problem. Our text this morning shows us the problem. And we will also see something of the answer as well as we look at the bigger context of Scripture. The bigger idea, the big idea this morning is that Jesus, tested by temptation, helps us recognize and resist temptation. The context here in Genesis chapter 3 is that Moses has described creation so that the Israelites will understand who God is, who they are, and what their mission in life is to be. And now we learn why things have gone so terribly wrong, and in fact why things would continue to go terribly wrong for God's people when they entered the promised land. So let's look at this. The first part of us looking at this is that temptation deceives minds to reject God's word. We see this primarily in uh, chapter 2, 25 through verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Naked. That word, or naked if you're from Kentucky, I had people <laughs> in my previous congregation who were from Kentucky, so they would always say naked, and I would, and if I said naked, they didn't know what I was talking about. So, in case anyone is from that region of the country. That word in English is sort of the, the, the bookends of this text. And yet what we find is that when you look in the Hebrew, those are two very different words for naked. That mean two very different things. And in between, something incredibly profound happens that takes us from the first one to our experience of the second one. The first one. They're all going to sort of rhyme. This one is Yarom. Don't worry about that. No test on it. But it has this idea that there is a lack of concealment, that there is no disguise, that Adam and Eve were open and transparent people. Uh, they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing for them to hide about themselves. Everything was cool. Kind of hard for us to understand that, right? How many of you have had those dreams? You know, when you're up in public? And everyone starts snickering, and you look down, and you realize you're in your underwear, right? We're, we're not cool, usually, unless there's something wrong with us psychologically, with being naked in front of other people, unless it's our spouse. We're not as open and transparent as Adam and Eve were. There's a very good reason for that. Because then we see the entrance of the serpent, and the word that is used to, to, that is translated crafty or subtle rhymes with the word for naked. It is yarum instead of yarom. And there's a word play that's going on here. Because whereas Adam and Eve were open and vulnerable, he is crafty, shrewd. He has something to conceal. He comes, in fact, in disguise, because it is not so much the serpent, but it is the evil one who speaks through the serpent, an instrument of his message. He has an agenda, but he hides it well. We know in retrospect, but it was not clear and apparent to Eve when he began to engage her on this topic of, has God really said? 
His agenda is, is to sow doubt, to sow distrust, and ultimately unbelief in order to derail God's plan, the mission that he had put Adam and Eve on, and therefore all of humanity. He seeks to derail, he seeks to deface God's image in humanity. That's what he's doing. And so he comes. And he comes, uh, you know, almost, it's almost humorous in some ways, because he makes such an obvious distortion initially. But he's like a good poker player. Okay, he's not playing his whole hand yet. He's bluffing a little bit. He's baiting the hook with her. But it's interesting that he's engaging her. Not Adam. Eve. Hmm. And so he makes this thing. Did God really say not to touch any of the fruit in the garden? Any. All. Of course not. She corrects him. And she says, no, no, it's just the one tree in the middle that we're not supposed to eat from. But then she says something interesting. She goes, or touch it. Was that what they were told? No. Now, we don't know if it's something that she kind of made up on her own or if it's something that Adam made up and communicated to her. We're not really sure kind of what happened because we're just given this little snapshot of their existence before the fall. But something there should warn us. And that here is a person who has no predisposition towards disobedience. This is a person in a perfect environment, a garden, and yet she already is adding to God's word. How much more us? How much more attention do we need to pay to God's word? Because we are prone to distort it, to misquote it, to take it out of context. So there's something of a warning there for us that Moses kind of lays kind of between the lines. So she says, don't touch it. Man. Just one commandment is all they had, and she couldn't keep that straight. We got a whole lot more. We're in trouble, right? So anyway, and so now the temptation begins to set in. Now the serpent begins to up the ante because he says, "You will not surely die." God had said that was clear. The, the dying you shall die. The day, you know, when you eat of it, you're under the death sentence. And so what the serpent says is, really, there's not going to be a penalty for your disobedience. God is not going to kill you. Relax. Temptation says that basically God cannot be trusted to keep his word. And in this instance, it is the word of discipline. And that is one of the parts of child rearing I sort of hate. Because when I warn them about discipline and they go ahead and disobey, I get a discipline. <laughs> you know? And there are times when that happens and I have to say that I need to show you that I'm going to keep my word because God keeps his word. 
That in my role as a dad, I'm supposed to be reflecting who their heavenly father is. And if I teach them that I'm not going to keep my word, I'm lying about God. And so I have to follow through when I say, if you, if you do this one more time, this is what's going to happen to you. I got to do it. Satan is saying, he's not going to do that. He's not going to follow through. It's just, he's all bark. He's no bite. That God. Second temptation. Not only does he say, you're not going to die, but he also says this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. He says, basically, God is not good. And the reason God is not good is because he's keeping something good from you. And so what temptation does is it deceives us, it seeks to deceive us anyway, and saying that that which God has said is bad for us is actually good for us. It wants us to believe that that which is forbidden by God to us is actually something really good and that God is actually a cosmic killjoy. That God doesn't want us to enjoy something that is good for us. Again, that, that we, I see this in my relationship with my children a lot. When, when Amy and I tell them they can't do something, they act like we're keeping something good from them. And a lot of times we, we bring it to the surface and we, we say, don't you trust us to know what is good and best for you? Because when they're in rebellion, they're not trusting us to know what is good and best for them. They're saying, I really don't think God has, I mean, Daddy has my best interest in mind, and therefore I think God doesn't have my best interest in mind. That is the deception of sin. The deceitfulness of sin is that God is mean. He's withholding something good for you from you. He's not to be trusted. Not only that, but we see that temptation here is ignoring the numerous blessings they have already received. It's one tree. They have the rest. God's incredible provision for them to eat. It's almost like saying to you, you guys are free. To eat from any restaurant in Tucson, but one. Because I know that if you eat from that one, you are going to get a disease. You're going to get hepatitis. Sort of like that. Now, wouldn't we go, I get to eat at every good restaurant. Cool. I don't want to get hepatitis. I'm going to stay away from that one restaurant. No. We're like my kids. We want the one toy we can't have. We don't want to go over these restaurants. We want that one. That's what sin does. It deceives us into thinking that all of these are really no good. But this one here, that's good. And so we ignore all of God's provision. And we take the thing that we're prohibited from taking. We do this all the time. I'm not going to harp on single people, because I was single once. It's hard to be single. But it's hard to also recognize that God places boundaries on, on sex. And we think that we're missing something, 
really good. Well, sort of are. Um, (laughs) But taken out of its proper context, it becomes bad. And it becomes dangerous. It becomes harmful. A hammer is a good thing until you need something else. But not only that, but we see temptation deceiving uh, Eve here in that he also, Satan, promises blessing. That whole idea of see for yourself. What is he promising her? Your eyes will be open and you'll be able to be like God and you'll be able to discern right from wrong. He's basically promising her autonomy, the ability to discern for herself what's good and what's evil. Get God out of the picture. Is what he's saying. You don't need him to tell you what's right and what's wrong. You'll be able to figure it out yourself. A promised blessing. Sin promises us blessing. It lies to us about that promise, but it does. That's part of how it tricks us into going, yeah, I want this. So that's part of the deceitfulness of sin, how it deceives our minds to begin to reject God's word. But there's one other little question that boggles the mind. Where's Adam? We know from later on the text he was right there. What happened? Adam was was told to exercise great care over the garden. When that snake showed up and started talking to his wife, he should have been all over it. He should have been jumping on that thing and crushing its skull. He should have been telling it, Shut up! You're lying! You're trying to deceive us. I heard God's word myself, and I know what he said. And I'm in fellowship with him all the time. You're not speaking the truth. Get out of here. It doesn't. He allows the temptation to take place. But temptation, we see, is a grand deception designed to doubt God's goodness. Let's look at the second part of that from... Verse 6 is that temptation makes what God forbids desirable. We, we don't have the serpent speaking anymore. He disappears. We don't know if he leaves or he just shuts up. But he stops speaking. But what we see is that the bait has been set and now everything is in motion. It's all starting to play out. She is now beginning to interpret things not on the basis of what God has said, but on the basis of what Satan has said. She's checking out the fruit. You know, it is good looking. It it looks tasty. One year when we were up at the farm, uh, you'll hear about the farm. That's where Amy's parents live, and two of her siblings live there, and they're nine million kids. And uh, one of them, Ryan, Rye Girl. Uh, a couple years ago, she found something that she thought looked good to eat. And the kids are up there. I mean, they pick wild berries all the time. It's upstate New York, and there's wild blueberries and raspberries and blackberries, and the kids love to do this, and they pick apples off of trees and all this kind of stuff. And there was this one thing that she found. She didn't know what it was, but it looked tasty. And she ate it. And suddenly, her mouth erupted in blisters. Actually, it was something that the American Indians used to use to poison their arrows. 
She's lucky she didn't get sicker. So she's looking at this thing, not realizing it's poisonous and dangerous, but just looking. It looks pretty. I think that's yummy. I think I want to eat it. She's what she's thinking. But it also has this idea of it was desirable or delightful. It wasn't just it looks tasty, but now it's shifted to this thing that God has said I shouldn't have is now desirable. It's delightful. This word is used in the Tenth Commandment, translated covet. She's coveting the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, she had to have it. She wanted to gain insight. She wanted the wisdom that supposedly it would give her. She didn't want to go to God for wisdom. She wanted to get it for herself. It's almost like Prometheus, you know, stealing the fire, giving it to people. Prometheus is is essentially almost a satanic symbol in that mythology because he gets banished for his sin against the gods. And so here we have the serpent not giving fire, but wisdom, or what supposedly is wisdom. It's actually foolishness. But she thought she needed to have this, and she thought she needed to have this now. And so she takes the shortcut to wisdom by taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil. Instead of taking the long route and sitting in subjection to God and submission to Him and saying, teach me right and wrong. And so what happens is that the the deceitfulness of sin makes the fleeting pleasures of sin seem necessary. That's what's so astounding about Moses. I think you've got the quote from Hebrews 11 down there. Is that Moses, after the fall and all of this stuff, he turned away from the pleasures of sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin that Egypt offered him to suffer with God's people. It's only by grace that we can do that. Because the deceitfulness of sin makes sin look so pleasurable and exciting. So temptation stirs up these uncontrollable desires for what God prohibits. So what happens? They take. They eat. She gives it to to Adam, he takes, he eats. And now we reach the bookend of this. The third part of this is that sin leaves us defense, defenseless and ashamed. Oh, their eyes were opened. But they didn't see what they expected to see. They saw something completely different. They, in fact, saw that they were naked. Instead of this time it being uh, Yarom, it was Yerom. Different nuance. It doesn't mean that they lacked concealment or disguise. What it means is that they were defenseless, they were weak, they were humiliated. Think about Tiger Woods for a moment, when the whole world knew. Wouldn't you hate to be in that guy's shoes? Everything's coming out. There's no place to hide. You're humiliated. You can't stop it. You can't control it all from coming out. Everything that you've done wrong, well, not everything, but a lot of stuff that you did wrong is now out there in the open. And everyone's going to look at you a little bit differently now, aren't they? That's part of the idea here in this kind of nakedness. They felt like victims of crime or abuse. They were powerless and ashamed. 
They felt filthy, violated. I've been robbed before. Someone broke into one of my houses. I think I've told you this. They stole my music collection. That was one of the few things they stole from the house was my music collection. But it was like all of a sudden you, you like aren't safe in your own home. There is, a, is there some sort of internal sense that you have been violated, even though I was never touched? There's a sense of that hopelessness, that powerlessness, that I couldn't stop it from happening. Or if you've been beaten up by the neighborhood bully. That's the idea here. They sought a more abundant life, and what they got really was death. They sought what they thought was heaven on earth, and what they received was hell. Their only response is to sew fig leaves into a loincloth. That's the best they could do. That's the best they could come up with. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But they felt the need to hide. And they thought everything was going to be good. Remember, they failed in a garden with no predisposition towards sin. But we, you and I, we live in this fallen world with a predisposition to sin. We are powerless now in the face of temptation. Not only that, but this autonomy that we seek to be a rule unto ourselves or law unto ourselves, what happens is it often strips people of their shame. It seems anyway. I mean, was Tiger Woods ashamed of doing what he did? No. It wasn't until everybody found out (laughs) that now he's ashamed of what he has done. Makes Makes me wonder... You know, because we live in this world where there's nothing that's wrong, right? For some people. And yet we live in a very prosperous nation, and yet there's so much depression around us. Is part of that depression a function of the fact that we're living in rejection of who God is, and instead of admitting our guilt and corruption, we turn it in and wrestle with depression? It's like shame turned inward. You know, there's something wrong with us, but we don't want to face really what it is. And so, from our perspective, sin explains what went wrong. It's why people are defenseless and ashamed. It's why this world is broken. Disobedience. So at this point, you're probably going, okay, Steve, where's the gospel? Right. Well, the good news is not in this text, but it is in a similar text. Matthew 4, but I'm thinking also of Hebrews 4. Because Jesus bested temptation to give us mercy and grace. Here's what we find, is that Jesus is baptized... The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. God declares with a voice from the heavens, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit, keep that in mind now, the Spirit pushes him into the desert, into the wilderness. 
where he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's tested. 40 days, 40 nights. But notice the difference here. He's not in a garden. He hasn't got it good. And it's not, from what we can see, something that happens in the course of an hour or less. This is 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, as a representative for sinners, that's the whole purpose of his baptism, was to identify with Israel in its sin. He entered the wilderness to be tempted. And we see that Satan uses the very same approach. He says, if you're really God's son, God had just declared, this is my son. If you're, God's, if you're really God's son, and since you're hungry, why don't you turn the stones into bread? If you're really God's son, why don't you jump off a cliff? Because it says in Scripture that God will send his angels to protect you. And so, once again, Satan uses the idea of corrupting God's word by taking out of its context, but also by challenging what God has said. In this case, the identity of Jesus. Just as he will come at you, are you, if you're really a Christian, okay, that's how he's going to come at you. If you're really a Christian, shouldn't you do this? Or if you're really a Christian, you wouldn't do that. That's how he will come. And so what the evil one does is he begins to isolate these texts, take them out of context. And what we see Jesus doing is putting them back in context. He says about the bread, a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He says about jumping off of a cliff, he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test, meaning don't do foolish things and expect him to get you out. He refuses to take the shortcut. So Jesus, in one sense, is a model for our resisting temptation. We need to bring the fullness of the word of God against the deceit that the evil one tries to foist upon us. But Jesus is more than a a model for resisting temptation. If that's all it was, then we'd still be in big, big trouble. That's good, but we need something more. We need someone who overcomes sin and Satan. And so what happens is, is that Jesus, when he, when he resists temptation, doesn't just do it for himself. He does it specifically as our representative. He does it for us. And so when God looks upon those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, he does not see all of our covenant breaking. He sees Jesus' covenant keeping. He doesn't see us caving in again. He sees Jesus keeping it again. Because we are united with him. So that's part of it. But there's more that's there. Hebrews 4 talks about Jesus as our great high priest. It says, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Okay? The, he- the Hebrews would be saying, the Hebrew Christians, so? So when we come to him, him who sits upon the throne of grace... We are able to find mercy and grace in our moment of need. 
timely grace. He overcame sin and Satan for our, on us. And now he, he sits at God's right hand as a refuge for us in the midst of our temptation. Mercy. There is mercy for those who fall in temptation. We can go to the throne of grace and receive pardon, forgiveness, restoration for what we have done, for once again believing the lies that we had to have that thing that's so bad for us. We get forgiveness again. Abundant and free. That's part of it. But it also talks about grace, so that He is a refuge. When we're experiencing temptation... We can find strength in Him to resist the temptation. And so Jesus is relevant for us whether we've already failed or we're struggling with it right now. These things are available to all who come by faith. And so uh, you know, as His people, we need to approach the throne of grace confident of His love and His power. We need to remind ourselves partially about, you know, when we want to see what what we want is really worth, how exciting it really is, we need to look at the cross. Say, that's why Jesus died. We think it's life, but it brought his death. We think it's no big deal, it brought his death. But we also see his love. Because he didn't have to go there. He chose to go there to save his people. And so the throne of grace is a place that shouldn't terrify us, but it beckons us. Come. Please come, is what it says. And you will find the mercy and the grace that you need at that point in time. Because of his love, because of his power, because he sits upon the very throne of grace. So what is wrong with the world? That question is really another door to the gospel. When we engage people, (laughs) what's really wrong with the world? And you can go from that answer to begin to build a, a gospel presentation. Our explanation, temptation and sin, is the one that is most consistent with reality that we experience. But God also provides a way out, a refuge, a place of grace through faith. We do not need to be deceived by temptation. We do not need to be made slaves to sin. Jesus is the one who rescues us from this cycle of sin and despair. Why don't we pray? Father, There are enemies within and without. We are prone to wander, prone to sin because of this enemy within us, this indwelling sin that remains within us. And as a result, we find ourselves profoundly affected by the temptations of the evil one, the enemy without. And so, if we're honest, we acknowledge that we profoundly need Jesus who has defeated the devil to destroy his works. 
that we need the mercy and grace that only He can give us. As we continue to struggle with temptation and sin, I ask that you would continue to point us to Jesus, our great high priest, who continues to sit upon this throne of grace and continues to give grace and mercy according to our need. Thank you, Father, that there is a refuge and it is the one that you have provided. We ask this in the name of our great high priest, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, the warrior who went before us, the one who has conquered death and hell. Amen.